This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, the butler did it. Or did he? How whodunits have shaped speculative fiction. I'm not going to lie, I'm very impressed you managed to get through how whodunits. I'm... I'm totally impressed with that. I'm kind of like patting myself on the back as we speak. Because it's like, he how who done. <laughs> Very impressive. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, so this week, um, this week's episode is brought to you rather unusually, not by Jules reading something, but by Jules <laughs> watching something. Yeah, a few weeks ago... Um... Alan and I watched See How They Run, which is a sort of comical murder mystery set around the original 1930s, 1940s production of Agatha Christie's Mm -hmm. The Mousetrap um, as a Broadway show in London. Or a West End show, rather, Broadway being in New York. But you know what I mean, West End show. And it's still running today. It's one of the longest running shows ever. Um, and obviously there's all sorts of interesting quirky stuff about it like the fact that you know you go and see the show once and it's not the same it's not the same perpetrator (laughs) each time they change things up and you don't necessarily know which one you're going to get which I kind of like as a Mm -hmm. a quirky piece of of storytelling Um, but anyway it got me thinking about detective novels obviously and more specifically, the Who Done It, which kind of exists in a class yeah. of its own. Um, you know, <laughs> and to be honest, it's actually sort of useful to look at in general um, because even if you're not someone who writes or even reads Who Done uh, Who Done It, um, most books and films, um, I mean, most stories, in fact, will contain an element of mystery. Um, now we've done an episode on mystery specifically, so do check that out, guys. Um, but there is something about the whodunit which informs a lot of how most modern stories are actually written. Um, certainly here in the uh, West, so um, across <laughs> England and, and, and you know parts of Europe and obviously in the USA. Um, so that is what we're going to be looking at today. Yes. Okay, so let's take a look at what is it about a whodunit. So we're, we're delving into reader psychology and human psychology in general here. And as I've said many times on this podcast, probably so many times you're sick of me saying it, um, (laughs) but but people are reason makers. Humans are uncomfortable with uncertainty. It's wired into us early in our evolution. Mm -hmm. The idea that someone would commit a murder, for example, for no more reason than whim, is very disturbing to us. Uh, There's a reason that serial killer thrillers and crime novels often veer into horror and why those with a macabre fascination for serial killers are exercising some darker parts of their psyche in a sort of catharsis with that very fascination Um, basically exposing yourself to the kind of thing that you fear but also kind of trying to understand how and why it can happen um and of course the further deeper we go there's always a reason for everything it's just that the reason might not feel like it's obvious to us um (laughs) So it feels like, oh, well, they've just done it on a whim. No, they are getting something out of it. It's just not something that the rest of us would get out of it. Um, well, or, that you can, yeah, you can make, make a, connection an immediate with, connection so, with. Yeah. And that is the, the, the terrifying thing. So um, 
from here, yeah. uh, from a sort of stage left, uh, enters the whodunit. Um, in its purest form, it's neat, it's logical, it has reasons that can be verified and checked. At the end, you receive a different sort of catharsis from that. Um, so basically you get the catharsis of having all the answers parceled out. Um, all the loose ends get tied up, um, and there's a feeling that the universe is running on the right track. So everything is tied off with a neat bow, and there's a great sense of conclusion, which you don't tend to get from real life mysteries, unfortunately, since all of those usually end with some kind of thing not no. being answered. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, sort of like, oh, we've gone as far as we can and we can't actually yeah. get the, the proper 100% this is it answer. It's, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, in addition, humans are natural puzzle yeah. solvers. It's another thing that's really baked into our DNA very early on. Um, so we literally cannot help it present us with the right kind of puzzle for each of us as an individual and yeah. that shit is getting solved we will literally sit at it until it's done if it's the right puzzle for the right person we can't leave it alone those who enjoy whodunits are often right there with the investigator trying to work out who the murderer is before the final reveal um, that's compelling stuff that really is quite compelling stuff if you've got a good story along with that then yeah, people get locked in. It's easy to see how they then overlook some of the more ridiculous yeah, elements. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, um, I mean, just to remind people, you know, we as a species love puzzles so much, we literally create them for ourselves. <laughs> we seek them yeah, out. It's not even that, oh, there's a puzzle in front of me, uh, therefore I will solve it. It's like, no, we actively go looking for them. Um, and of course, people will like different sorts of puzzles. And the whodunit kind of also entices a different form of, of puzzle solving from, you know, trying to solve a regular mystery, which, I mean, people do. There are people who, you know, love actually looking at, at cold cases or actually, you know, being sleuth investigators, you know, um, sorry, sleuth investigators? Um, amateur investigators, amateur sleuths. I'm, I'm having a day. <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> but of course, with the whodunit, um, you're actually engaging a different form of your puzzle solving brain because you're not actually technically approaching it from the I'm actually trying to solve a genuine mystery as would be with the rules of, of the real world. You are solving a story mystery. And so the investigation, the puzzle is actually in storytelling, which again is something which is ingrained within us and is probably why the the whodunit as a form is so comforting. Yeah, I mean, those two things together, that's that's a recipe for something very compelling right there. Yeah. And as long as there are plenty of twists and turns to keep us guessing, we love getting to the end and finding out that we were right. Yes. Um, it's why... This is this is why, uh, for example, there's been actually this recent kind of uptrend of people saying, actually, we're not liking this, this trend of of trying to twist or shock kind of the the reader or, or the audience because people actually like the building suspension they like actually figuring stuff out and yes every now and again we do like a, a sort of a hail mary which makes us go oh hold on a second oh but it only works if you then look back and go of course the signs were all there um <laughs> yeah um yeah, it's like, conversely, we also love getting to the end and finding out we were wrong, as long as the false trail, yeah. as Madeline has just said, has been laid cleverly and the answer is yes. obvious in hindsight. If it isn't, if it just sort of comes out of the blue, you will find that people tend to get annoyed and 
they just won't find it engaging at all. You need to have that build up. Um, the problem is that if you are a writer, and I'm sure there are lots of writers who are listening to this and going, yeah, or if you read a lot of this kind of stuff, you become very, very good at spotting those things. Um, also, if you if you have ADHD, yeah. you also apparently become very good at spotting these things, which means that you might very well figure stuff out much sooner than other people because you've already followed the logic of the storytelling to its conclusion. You've solved that puzzle. So, of course, everything's going to have slightly different mileage for different people. And at the end of the day, even if you are someone who can figure it out early on, the process is still fun. It's like a puzzle. You know what the image is at the end, but the process of still putting it together, the methodical task, can still be fun for some people. Um, and that's why the whodunit, I think, is so successful, even when it's relatively obvious who, you know, the murderer or the, the, the criminal is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that does, we'll talk a little bit later about the why done it, which is a slightly, it's a slight subversion of the, the whole whodunit. Yeah. type thing um which i think is an interesting take um but yeah i have to say for me personally either i'll get two chapters in and i'll know mm -hmm. exactly who done it <laughs> or i won't know until the very end it'll, it'll it's 50 50 it'll go one of two ways either my nasty suspicious mind goes it's that person and i'm right <laughs> <laughs> or i'm there going i literally cannot see who could have possibly be responsible for the murder <laughs> Really weird. Sometimes I'm watching things and I'll open my mouth to say, well, that. <laughs> the people I'm watching would be like, don't! <laughs> don't ruin this for us! <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Which, you know, it's where the second ingredient in the recipe comes in. Yes, you've got the whodunit, yeah. you know, the puzzle, but if you've got someone who's very good at puzzles or very good at that specific puzzle, as Madeline says, and solves it very quickly. Um, then that's where ingredient number two, yes. the story, comes in. The story will keep them invested even if they've yeah. already solved the puzzle. Because also the other thing is that you might have solved the puzzle, but you don't necessarily know all the context for it. So you can see the logical thing of, well, no. I'm seeing all the kind of the signs and the hints that it's going to be this person or that this twist is going to occur or, um, you know, that this... It was like I was watching um, uh, the new series Wednesday, um, and uh, I was immediately like, well, I yeah. know who, who's responsible. This is really kind of obvious. Um, but I only knew it because I, I kind of knew the logic of the story and I didn't understand how it would all fit together. So I still really enjoyed the reveal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, the other thing is whodunits tap into that staple of fiction. Everything happens for a reason. This is yeah. really comforting for the majority of us because in reality, while everything does indeed happen for a reason, it's not usually because it's part of some great cosmic plan, or at least as far as most of us can tell. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes things just happen, um, or they just happen because the laws of physics say that the boulder is going to fall off that cliff or what have you. Um, and that's a bleak and unsettling view of the universe for many people. We'd rather believe that when bad things happen, that some good is coming out yeah. of it. Often there is... But we can't assume that, you know, Sky Daddy was following a specific plan. If he's there, he's winging it like the rest of us. Okay? Sky Daddy, I can only see Zeus. <laughs> that, that's to. Just quite literally. <laughs> Father of all, pretty much. Um, no, but you, you are absolutely yeah. right. Um, 
it's one of those things where uh, the world, literally life, is full of coincidences. Um, two coincidences in a book, they're not coincidences. Two coincidences in real life, those are usually just coincidences. <laughs> yeah, either, basically we're either playing on a football pitch that is so huge we can't even see the pitch, mm -hmm. which is entirely possible. In and other case, people are also playing on it, a different sport. Yeah. And, <laughs> At which point it doesn't really matter. You can try and turn that into a grand plan if you want to, but it's just not going to work for you because you literally cannot see everything. It's too huge to see. Yeah. Um, or there isn't, you know, or there actually isn't any great rhyme or reason and things happen because they follow logical progressions in a sort of deterministic fashion. Yeah. In which case you still have to live as though that isn't happening. Otherwise you'll go nuts. Yeah. Oh, don't get me into the determinism and the soft... Like, no. <laughs> I had a whole debate about this because I'm a soft determinist and uh, my father is a determinist and I was trying to explain free will to him and... You know what? Let's, let's not even go into it. Yes, if you think about it too much, it will drive you crazy. Um, so, with that in mind... <laughs> let's look at an interesting aside, yes. which we may have looked at before, but you know yeah. what? We think it's funny, so... Yeah. We're going to do it again, because <laughs> no one can tell us not to. Okay, um, so we've we mentioned this, as, as Jill said. Um, the the butler did it. We There's obviously this running joke of, oh, it was the butler. Um, and it's one of those cliches which everyone has heard. Um, yet we have literally no idea where it actually comes from. Yeah, the, the earliest piece of known fiction in which the butler actually did do it was published in 1930. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> of course, there might very well be other things, but uh, that's the one we know of. And we know there has to have been other things because the earliest article which calls out the trope as being, you know, a cliché in detective fiction was published in 1928, two years before the first <laughs> piece of fiction that we know where the butler actually did it was published. <laughs> So unless somebody somewhere had a time machine and used it specifically to <laughs> fuck with the who done it, um, it means that there must have been other examples of detective fiction in which the butler did in fact do it, but none of them have survived, which leaves us with the bizarre situation in which, as Madeline has said, the earliest known trope call-out post predates the earliest known example of the trope in use by two years. Um, well, perhaps the butler hid the evidence. Perhaps the butler had the time machine. <laughs> <laughs> it was the butler! <laughs> Um, but <laughs> I love that kind of example because it also goes to show how much of fiction also disappears because in all likelihood it was a trope which was very prevalent in things like Penny Dreadfuls and, and kind of little short stories and stuff like that that would appear in newspapers or stuff that, that would just not survive that just haven't remained and, yeah and I think it's uh, not to go off on a tangent but I think it's fascinating because those stories were created and maybe that one single story just meant the world to somebody maybe it got them through some tough moments or whatever and we don't know about it because yeah. it vanished and think of how many centuries humans have been telling stories and all the stuff that we have lost that maybe rightly it was lost because the stuff that endures tends to be the stuff that's told and reread and retold over and over and over and over again yeah. so but it doesn't mean that it wasn't important in its own time. So it's like, if you write and you ever feel slightly <laughs> insignificant, just think, it doesn't matter. There's someone out there and your story is their favourite story ever and you've got them through yeah. a really tough moment. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes it worth it, I um, think. 
it it's i do love this example though um and for me also it it demonstrates the that this one of these major tropes within the who done it is actually something i think that dates back for a long time and shows therefore that even before we have what we consider to be detective fiction even before we you know we have these kind of these genre lines certain ideas prevail um and therefore talk a little bit about the human psyche because yeah we can say oh well we don't have that many examples of the butler did it before that period but if you look back we have examples of it was the treacherous servant it was you know something it was the it was the person who was overlooked constantly the person who was within the household um and so we see this kind of this story element which has survived for so long and actually continues to survive because how often now within whodunits and stuff like that is it it's the person who gets overlooked and that tends to be actually how a lot of people will watch a kind of a whodunit and say well we know immediately who it is because it's the the most unassuming person um this is that scooby-doo 101 it's (laughs) it's the unassuming (laughs) or it's the crabby person right from the beginning but you know it's it's it's, oh, we would never suspect them because they just seem so nice. They seem so kind, etc. Um, you saw that in the most recent, you know, in Zootopia, they did that. They did that in um, the second, uh, um, the uh, the Incredibles and stuff like that. Um, you know, it, it's a classic, and it just goes to show that we've been doing it for centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's look at why whodunits should not work. And yet they do. <laughs> yeah. So whodunits operate by playing with the reader slash viewer expectations. So they have to be formulaic enough to set up those expectations and to signal genre really effectively early on. But they also need to be unpredictable enough to keep the audience invested, which is a bit of a tightrope, let's be honest. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Something needs to be predictable and yet unpredictable at the same time. That is the whodunit. Because otherwise you lose people. Um, In addition, while setting can play a part, the genre as a whole is not defined by setting or imagery the way other genres are. What keeps a whodunit going is adherence to the tropes with a generous splash of judicious use of good characterisation. In the end, it's a lot of plates to keep spinning because nothing must attract from the murder mystery for very long. And to keep the pace fast, plotting must be watertight and descriptions need to be detailed but sparsely worded. Writing a good murder mystery that really works is an exercise in restraint. It really is. Um, and it shows the versatility of the genre because you literally can set it in any time. And people have, um, you know, whodunits that are set you know sort of in the historical period are uh, relatively popular um there is obviously a, a popular subclass of whodunits which are kind of set within the agatha christie time because they've been you know uh, influenced by stuff like miss marple poirot stuff like that as well but also because it provides a really good backdrop as kind of police and investigations take another step forward and you've got the backdrop of of you know the world wars etc um, and and this kind of s- this merging and this divide between you know the class systems etc. So it obviously provides a really good backdrop 
which gives lots of elements for the whodunit. But you also get whodunits which are set in the Tudor time, um, which are set in medieval England, which are set in the future, um, which are even kind of mixed up with other genres entirely. Uh, you know, set under the sea, set in a submarine. You know, <laughs> you can really put them anywhere. And that's yeah. kind of the exciting thing. Yeah, but it's also mm. kind of the drawback, isn't it? Because you can have an epic fantasy novel and really lay on the setting nice and thick. And that setting is kind of like, I don't know if you ever heard this, but when um, Jack Nicholson and... Uh, <laughs> I'm getting all the wrong <laughs> Keatings. Michael Keating were doing the Batman film. This is way, way back in the sort of um, very early 90s, late 80s. And... Uh, Michael Keating was kind of like struggling a bit and Jack Nicholson turned to him and said let the costume do the acting for you kid and he had a point because it's kind of like you know once you've got the full bat suit and everything on he didn't have the luxury of sort of a lot of facial expression or whatever so he had his voice his, his tone and everything and his actions so he needed to roll into yeah. using that costume to really make the statement. And I think it's kind of like that with setting in a lot of things, as in you can take your foot off the gas a little bit with um, epic fantasy because you've got this, if you've built the world correctly, you've got a good setting mm-hmm. or you're writing historical and you've done your research, then you can let yeah. the setting do a bit of the transportation of the reader. But with a whodunit, um, that setting mustn't actually, must be built enough for the reader to believe it but it's not allowed to ever take yeah. over because it can't overshadow the murder mystery plot. So it, you're kind of in a bind there. So yeah, you can set it anywhere, but it mustn't overshadow the murder mystery. Yeah, um, it needs to work in tandem. Um, and <laughs> it it is just a platform to stand on, um, unlike with pretty much everything else. Um, and of course, we've got the other thing, which is that if you look at the tropes as they've done it, <laughs> Um, uh, which we're going to look at in a moment. Um, they're, they're kind of ridiculous. Um, they really are. <laughs> they should be very hard to sell, um, and yet a decent murder mystery will somehow manage to do it. How? Probably witchcraft. <laughs> so what we're... Just to recap on what we've covered already, basically, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast from a writer's perspective, mm-hmm. and maybe you don't write whodunits, that's fine, but we would suggest you read a couple because... Um, it's a great place to learn the elements of economy, pacing, timing and plotting and the balancing act of story versus character and setting, um, which has started to have started. It's been feeding into modern speculative fiction, especially science fiction fantasy yeah. for a long time. And especially if books have a mystery element, you actually borrow a lot of the stuff from a whodunit. So it's definitely worth studying a couple just yeah, to see how absolutely. they're put together. It's like romance. Um, you might not you might not think you're writing in that genre, but by God, that genre can still help you out. Okay, so yeah. let's look at the tropes and why they're ridiculous, but why everyone still loves them regardless. <laughs> um, so I'm going to start us off with uh, the mysterious injury. Um, this can be a red herring, um, it can cast doubt on a suspect, and can suggest something about character. So, uh, for example, um, a typical one is the the old war wound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a great one, and I have to say that it's 
one that I, when someone says the mysterious injury, I immediately go to werewolf fiction, you know, proper werewolf fiction, where the yeah. werewolves are actually <laughs> scary, they're not, like, sexy. Um, and there's, there's, you know, there's a beast on the loose kind of thing. And it's like, ah, oh, yes, yeah, someone's got this really, they're wearing this bandage on their wrist. Why are you wearing a bandage on your wrist? Oh, well, I hurt myself, etc. And then you find out a bit later on they've been bitten yeah. by something. Oh, it was just a dog. <laughs> was it just a dog, though? <laughs> or do we have to worry about you on the full moon, too? So it's a little bit like that, but it's also a case of um, you've got your typical whodunit set up and you've got your, your list of suspects and uh, someone has a rope burn on their hand, a really nasty one. And maybe it's just from adjusting yeah. um, scenery on set and, you know, lifting one of the sandbags or something. And that's what they'll say. They'll yeah. say it slipped through my um, hand and it burned <laughs> their skin off. That's painful. It looks nasty. It could be something else. Yeah. Um, and it... it... But it it's could sometimes be something used else. as a red herring, um, as said, whereby um, it's kind of painted off that we suddenly go, oh, well, that's suspicious that, you know, we're in a zombie apocalypse and they seem to have some kind of, you know, wound of some sort. They've definitely been bitten. We know someone's been bitten. Is it them? Um, and then, you know, it turns out it isn't. They were actually telling the truth. Or, in fact, there was another mystery because sometimes whodunits actually have several levels of mystery um and one of the mysteries tends to you might have a romantic element to it um, um whether that's a tragic or a happy romantic element this is typical in a lot of kind of the miss marple ones for example where uh, um you know there's uh, the two star-crossed lovers or um xyz um yeah and it's actually, it actually is still part of a mystery, but it's a different, it's a different mystery. <laughs> it's not the main one. Um, but I do, I do kind of like this trope, even though it is incredibly obvious sometimes. Yeah, I think you, you've got the option of as either really rolling into it and saying, yeah, I'm, I want the, I want the reader to go, maybe, but I'm pretty sure it's a red herring. Or you want to kind of like hyper signal that it could be. And then at some point, just drop that hyper-signalling to more subtle levels until the reader's kind of discarding them as a suspect, I think. It's all about playing with the expectations, and it, it has to be quite skillfully yeah. done. I love the... I really do love the old war wound thing, sort of like, oh, you've got this venerable colonel-type character, yeah. and he walks with a limp. So he couldn't possibly have moved fast enough. And then you later find out that, actually, he was never actually in the army, and we're not sure... At, no one here really knows who he is. We just assumed because he goes by the name of yeah. Colonel, whatever, and he walks with a limp. He's clearly a decorated hero, but he's not, and maybe the limp's not real, you know? Yeah. It's an affected I've, thing. I've actually seen examples of this where it's done very subtly, um, where, you know, a wound is kind of disguised sufficiently that you don't even register it until it's brought up, and then you suddenly go, oh, of course, it was right there to begin with. Um, and that's actually quite hard to do because um, with writing, and again, this is this is a bit of a trick, which is that any time you see any detail added in a book, you've got to say uh, that detail is there for a reason, therefore it's important. So any innocuous detail, um, but every now and again you'll have writers who are, you know, really do like to pick, build a picture and they add a detail which just feels like it's part of building the picture which then you go back and go oh what <laughs> no that was a key not <laughs> not just a, a random bit of furniture yeah um so it can be done well um and even when it's done obviously yeah, it, it can still be charming and that's that's the mystery <laughs> 
yeah i mean remember you've got your two-pronged attack you've got the puzzle or you've got the story yeah and you must stab your reader with one of them yeah both if you can both both ideally yeah (laughs) okay um the absent murderer i kind of like this one uh this sort of is predicated on the whole the murder's happened you've got the group of people there you've got the person investigating it and we assume that the murderer is not present, but somehow you've got to get you've got to get the information out of the people who yeah. are present as to who this possibly could be. Um, this is great because, I mean, even though the murderer is most likely going to be ter- going to turn out to be someone mm-hmm. who's actually there, um, it helps keep the audience from guessing too early on. So you know, if you've got a bunch of writers watching your film or reading your book. Um, most of them are going to be probably going, ah, it's that person. (laughs) (laughs) And you you want to try and avoid that if you possibly can. So, I mean, the best time for readers to start really working things out is about two thirds of the way through, and you've got to keep it compelling up until that point. I think that's kind of Mm -hmm. like the most satisfying time when they're kind of like, okay, I've got enough information to start forming a theory. Two thirds of the way through, I'm so invested, I'm going to get to the end, I'm going to sit yeah, that absolutely. last third in one sitting kind um, of thing. And it is, it's a typical thing that actually, um, you know, if you are writing a whodunit and you only introduce the murderer right at the end, or, or um, you know, even past the middle, uh, and you know when i when we talk about introducing uh, i mean like literally introducing so we haven't really heard about them at all since um, not necessarily that they haven't been in the room since you're going to get people feeling really sort of betrayed by that um yeah definitely um there's something stephen king calls one-armed bandit syndrome and it's basically kind of like um, I, it wasn't me, Governor. It was the one-armed bandit, and everybody knows of this one-armed bandit, but no one's ever spoken to him. He has no speaking lines or anything. He's just a convenient yeah. sort of um, patsy for whatever's gone down. Um, and it's not okay to do that because you are promising your readers a puzzle to solve. You can't hand them a Rubik's cube and then tell them that actually they were doing a crossword all along. It's not. That's not okay. Yeah, um, and you know, it's it's also like. Right, well, we, we're asking you to solve this puzzle, puzzle, but we're actually literally withholding one of the pieces and telling you that all of the pieces are there. Um, people are not going to like it. It's yeah. just really going to be very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, so the next is the lights go out. Um, <laughs> now, this is usually a reversal of fortune for the detective. So a murder is carried out in a public space but uh, no one knows anything because the lights went out. Uh, the game uh, Murder in the Dark, essentially. <laughs> Did you ever play that as a kid? Um, I might have done. We used to basically, we, we'd have uh, pieces of paper which were folded up and one of them would have an X on it. And if you drew the piece of paper with the X, you were the murderer. Mm-hmm. And then you all gather together in a room and you the lights go off. Yeah. And the person... <laughs> And the, the person who's the murderer then commits a, commits a murder by... Not literally commits a murder, okay? <laughs> God, what kind of games are you playing? Like, no, um, not, a literal, not a literal murderer. But by tapping somebody on the shoulder in the dark. I mean, you make it so dark that nobody can actually really see anything. Yeah. And that person then has to scream and fall down. Then the lights go back on again. And you've got the person who's dead and everybody else. And you've got to work out who amongst you is the murderer. <laughs> 
used to play it as kids. It was great fun. We never played that. We did play Wink Murder, though. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, I think we might have played that as well. I love it. So for those who don't know what Wink Murder is, everyone sits in a circle. The murderer is chosen and they murder people by making eye contact with them and winking. Um, and of course, it works. usually works in large groups. So you can't necessarily tell who's, you know, who's the one who's winking and, and you've kind of got to keep an eye on everyone. Um, and it is great fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but very um, macabre, anyway, actually. <laughs> it is yeah. when you think about it. A lot of children think that. When you go, um, going back to the, the whole lights yes. going out thing, this is kind of a staple of the whodunit, particularly when it's a screen whodunit. So um, I'm pretty sure it happened during See How yeah. They Run, which I said I've watched recently. It happens during the mouse trap, as in the theatre yeah. production. Um, and various other things and it's it was initially brought in I think to just sort of shock mm-hmm. audiences because you just suddenly plunge everyone into darkness and then when the lights come back up somebody's dead kind of thing so yeah there's a shock factor there um, it was also good if you know on stage because you could you know have someone being graphically killed without having to show without revealing who the murderer is but also uh, you know, it kind of meant that you could get out the fake blood and you could position yourself on the floor. You didn't, <laughs> you didn't have to go through it all. It's quite convenient. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's definitely been parodied, basically, to the hilt. And it probably should be because even you think about it, it's kind of like, oh, the lights will go out and I'll have my window opportunity to murder somebody yeah. right in this room full of people and no one will notice anything. Um, but I think the point that this particular trope makes and if you use it and do it right that's the point you'll be making is that eyewitness testimony is not a reliable way of collecting evidence um and if you're all sat there going what well what do you mean eyewitness testimony well it's just not um i've talked about this before they've actually done experiments they had um a setup where a car was going down a road in a public place and there was a person on a bicycle the person fell off the bicycle near the car, but without getting, mm-hmm. you know, without the car actually touching it. And then they had an agent provocateur planted in the crowd who suddenly started screaming that the car had hit the person on the bike. And when they interviewed the other witnesses after that, they all of them, all of them swore, absolutely swore they'd seen the car hit the bike. Because when one person takes control of the narrative, 99 times out of 100, everybody else will yeah. then immediately swear to that narrative. It's, yeah, we're um, kind of programmed to do it. You know, it's not even that people actually are lying to themselves. Uh, you know, the the implantation of false memories is is a very real thing, and when you actually think about how we as a even how we see as we're going about, we cannot see everything all at once. Um, you know, part of our vision is literally blocked by our nose, um, and yet our eyes kind of compensate for that and sort of you know make it up essentially we do have our blind spots um and also when we're very rarely looking at something directly head on at at all times and so our brain literally fills in information based on you know um on the data that's that's around us so people will literally think they have seen something because they saw a certain number of things and their brain filled in the rest of it and that feels like everything that they've seen so that is one of the problems. Um, yeah. It's not to say that eyewitness testimony should be completely thrown out. It mm. shouldn't. But what you ideally want is three 
between three and six independent, non-contaminated, as in they have not had any contact with each other, yeah. eyewitnesses who all say the same thing. Yeah. And nobody's managed to get to them and talk to them and pollute what they think they remember, which is really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And when you have somebody literally shouting what has happened, even though it hasn't happened, then if you've got a huge group of people, you end up with a lot of useless eyewitness testimony because everybody thinks that what they saw was what was being shouted. It's not what they saw at all. It's only if you get somebody who goes, no, that didn't happen. I was stood literally right here. That car was nowhere near that bike. Yeah. Um, so um, that that's the point of the whole yeah, the lights and of course, go out even thing. if there is someone who's shouting certain things, sorry, even if there isn't someone who's shouting certain things, people can then start to put things together based on how... Every, everyone else is sort of acting around them so you get pulled into a police station um you know to be questioned you are immediately going to assume the absolute worst and that is going to inform how you've remembered something so the the, the yeah, who done it really kind of plays into that um a lot of the time and then also tends to play with expectations by parodying that in some respects by usually having a witness who is unreliable based on what they saw, because what they saw wasn't quite right. Um, yeah, yeah <laughs> it was a great example of this. And it is a Poirot, and I can't remember which one it is, but there's this whole thing where you have these two lovers who are absolutely in love with each other, and both of them see each other on the night that someone is murdered, and immediately think that the other one has committed the murder. Because they both they're both caught in compromising positions, and and neither of them are guilty of the murder, but just from the way that it is, and within the context of that they know later on that someone's been murdered, they immediately assume the other one uh, is the murderer, um, and so they actually start acting really odd around each other. They pretend to, you know they break up with one another, and actually what they're trying to do is cast suspicion on themselves to to avoid the detective figuring out that their lover is the one who is the murderer, even though their lover isn't the murderer. And there's this whole thing where Pajol's like, no, neither of you are the murderer. You've both been trying to pretend that you're the murderer while the the other one is trying to protect you from being the murderer and neither of you did it. And it's a great example. The double red herring. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, an- another trope that is pretty much universal is that everyone is guilty. Yeah. So um, this isn't for the faint-hearted, if you're writing yeah. it, <laughs> um, because there's lots and lots of moving pieces. But a vast web of shared guilt can be absolutely delicious for the amateur sleuth in the audience. Uh, it's certainly one I like, the one where it's like, oh my god, they're all in on it. Now we just need to portion out who's, who's more to blame yeah. than everyone else kind of thing. Um it can also be played for laughs um, or used as part of the the why done it style mystery um, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a second Um, so uh, (laughs) um, a a really good example of this is is, and I'm sorry spoilers guys but to be honest at this point pretty much everyone who's interested in the genre should know Murder on the Orient Express is kind of a good example of of this being used in a very serious way and was probably one of the you know was relatively shocking at the time because it it was still a relatively new format within that context within the way that it was done um yeah but it it kind of has varying degrees of success and that is because it is very tricky to do 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the play by J.B. Priestley, Death of a Sale, not Death of a Salesman, uh, An Inspector Calls, which yeah. is actually good. Um, so it gets me throwing shade at Arthur Miller there. So I don't like <laughs> Death of a Salesman. Um, but I do like J.B. Priestley's An Inspector Calls, and uh, we you know, did it at school and I've read it since then. And mm. the weird thing, the whole play is a commentary on you know, class privilege and the fact that you can literally murder somebody else by not considering them. Yeah. Um, and everybody in that family is guilty in one form or another. And you're left at the end with this very uncomfortable feeling of trying to work out who's the most guilty Yeah. for this girl's death. So, yeah, that, that one also kind of does it, even though no one actively lifted a hand to murder this one person. It's just that everything they did led to her death. Yeah. Um, another good example of this is Hot Fuzz. Yes, oh my god. <laughs> Hot Fuzz is a glorious mess of a film which also embraces the whole small English rural village attitude. Yeah. And it's like, if, you, if you're if you in America and you're listening to this and you're saying, I've watched Hot Fuzz, it's nuts. It's like, yeah, I'm going to say you haven't lived in a small English country village because it is kind no, of like... No, seriously, like parts of Hot Fuzz were literally filmed around where I used to live. Um, and I was like, this is so eerie. And not just because of the backdrop, but it is so eerily... <laughs> <laughs> accurate <laughs> yep absolutely okay um so the next is the unsympathetic victim uh so this creates several viable suspects since the victim was not well liked um you need to spend time building up plausible relationships between the suspects and the victims however or it will end up falling flat I think this was something that Agatha Christie did mm -hmm. really well just in general, but she certainly did it in the mousetrap. Um, you start off the mousetrap before the murders actually happened and then the lights go out or, yeah. you know, something happens in that vein and the most unlikable yeah. character you've met so far is dead. And it's like, and everybody yeah, has a reason absolutely. to not like this character. Um, and it's kind of, but you know they've been murdered and you know you should find out who is responsible for a murder you should because if someone gets away with murder they might try it again you know <laughs> yeah absolutely um this is also sometimes done um by essentially having the 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 murder victim be um a sort of uh, someone who society wouldn't really care about as well yeah um a really good example of this is um Claire Gradiger's The Unex Unexpected Return of Josephine Fox, uh, yeah. where the the victim um, is basically assumed to be a prostitute. Um, and this is set during uh, the 19... Is it the 1930s? It, it's, it's World yeah, War II. Yeah, it's World War II. Uh, beginning of, I think, around. Um, so... Yeah. Uh, it's you know um wh what you have there is you don't just have kind of suspects in terms of who might actually be the murderer but you get this extra layer of suspects based on people who are actually hindering the investigation because they don't care about this girl yeah absolutely and it's so, so you know you've got your detective who or your investigator amateur sleuth whoever who are basically fighting two battles one of them is to actually get to the truth and the other one is actually to get to people to care enough so that they can get to the truth yeah 
Absolutely. Um, and it, it, I think that is something which also really helps with story because it tends to, you know, it, it brings up the whole aspect of even if the person wasn't a likeable person, such as in the case of um, uh, the Orient Express, one of the most compelling things about the Orient Express and one of the reasons why it's actually been so successfully adapted because um, I've seen two adaptations of it. I've seen the one with David Suchet and the the most the more recent one with um, Kenneth Branagh, yeah. and they managed to make an incredibly engaging story, despite the fact that I already knew who, you know, who was responsible, because there was a whole moral quandary with investigating the victim who was a criminal, who was a terrible person was not well liked, would have been the kind of person that Poirot would want to put behind bars. And yet he has this whole kind of thing, uh, particularly the David Suchet one, they they actually created this whole extra level of drama where he was struggling with his faith um, because Poirot was originally Catholic. And so he's struggling with this level of morality of I've got to do the, I've got to do the right thing, but what's the difference between what is morally right um, and what is, you know, um, right by law or, you know, things like that. And it, it was therefore really engaging, despite the fact that I already knew where the story was going. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to absolutely add a third layer to that, you can. You can have uh, the investigator themselves struggling with their own internalised yeah. prejudice about the person as well so they're kind of they know their duty is to find the truth yet everyone nobody around really cares because of this person whoever they are their, their class or what have you and the investigators themselves can't help feeling that maybe they got what was coming yeah. to them for the profession they were in or what have you and yet they still have to do it because yeah. it's their duty it's their moral obligation um you can you can make it complicated on a character level like that if you want yeah, to as long absolutely. as you feed it into the mystery um, and I think that, you know, at that level, you really start to kind of get into the depths and of, you know, human nature and stuff like that, which is, again, something else which you wouldn't you wouldn't think that whodunit, which is almost pantomime in how ridiculous some of these tropes are, um, would be able to actually kind of delve yeah. into areas which are so deep and yet, it, you know, you can have a whodunit, which is incredibly serious, incredibly moving. Um, which still plays on all of these tropes, but does so in order to expose, you know, the faults of humanity and the difficulties, you know, the grey areas, the things that we face, the compromises we make and what that turns us into, etc. Definitely. Okay, I really like this next one, or at least I really mm -hmm. like it when it's done well. Um, and that mm -hmm. is the faked death. And <laughs> <laughs> it, if it's done properly, this can be an absolute banger of a trope. Um, so yeah. if you think... The girl with the dragon tattoo where she's helping this helping the investigator um, locate a killer of women and it turns out that the person that they are desperately trying to um you know find out who killed her she's not actually dead she faked her death to get away from an abusive situation a long time before yeah um and gone girl which isn't really a whodunit at all although it does employ whodunit methods and if you haven't read it, you should read it because it is an absolute study in structure. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, it's a husband and wife revenge tale as well. <laughs> it's also a very compelling portrait of a, a genuine toxic sociopath 
Um, so for all of those reasons, I recommend the book and the film is pretty damn good too. But once again, uh, the the dead girl is not dead. And the reason she's not dead is for some very interesting yeah. reasons. <laughs> And the nice thing is that actually with this one, there are several, um, you know, ways that you can kind of make it work. Um, because you can have it that this is again, this was done in a in an episode of, of Poirot, um, which uh, and for, is it the Deadly Iris or something like that? I can't remember what the title is exactly, where they employ the, the kind of the, the fake death sort of thing. Um, actually near the end in order to catch the murderer. So they make the murderer think that they've succeeded in yeah. killing the victim. And then, of course, Poirot does some theatrics and uh, and it turns out, obviously, the victim wasn't killed. Um, that Poirot was kind of making a point um, to show how the murderer got away with what they did. And he does this very successfully because what he, he basically is arguing the fact that the murderer was able to poison the... Um, the the victim in plain sight by literally just stepping away from the table and dressing uh, and kind of disguising himself very simply as a waiter um who at the time you know there was this servants are supposed to staff and servants are supposed to be invisible well that's yeah they're supposed to be like furniture you know they're in the room but exactly exactly so um you know and Poirot demonstrates this perfectly by they have the the victim pretend to die and then whilst Poirot's explaining stuff the maid comes in and is serving everyone tea and they're all you know crying about oh we can't believe she's dead and stuff like that she's there serving them tea and none of them huh. have noticed um and it's this you know it's so that's it was done in a very entertaining way and the nice thing is of course we're watching it and we didn't notice either because we're not looking at her we're just yeah. you know and obviously the camera i think definitely helped with all of that uh but you know we could have if we'd properly looked at her we would have probably been able to go hold on a second that's the same actress um <laughs> um <laughs> so it can be done very very successfully that way um the other one is I recently saw a play adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, The Valley of Fear. Yeah. Uh, which again employs the the victim, again, has faked their own death. So there's this whole mystery of who's who's the murder you know, who's murdered this person? And the victim wasn't even dead. The one who's dead is the murderer. It's very strange. <laughs> So yeah, um, it can be employed very well. It can be done quite funnily, but it can also be done in a very serious way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. The next is the alibi. So this is an essential trope. Um, if someone couldn't physically have been present, it rules them out as a suspect. Or does it? Uh, <laughs> a skillful author can do some convoluted manoeuvres to make a suspect seem innocent when in fact they're just covering their tracks. Um, so the, they did it with mirrors. <laughs> it's, it's a very common one. Yeah, I think that might have actually been a Miss Marple um, mystery. And it was a case of, uh, as okay, I'm going to misquote this because it's been such a long time since I watched mm -hmm. it or read it. As in, I was a teenager. Um, but as I recall, they were making a young woman in a house think she was... She, they were kind of gaslighting her. They yeah. were gaslighting an heiress. And um, her husband was involved in it. And they were trying to make us think that she was seeing ghosts. And to the point where they were talking about shutting her up quietly in a sanatorium, which was the nice yeah. polite term for an asylum. <laughs> um, and 
as it turned out, Miss Marple worked out that what she was seeing was somebody actually walking across somewhere else, being reflected back by these huge mirrors that had been deliberately put in place. So it is literally they did it with mirrors. So this person wasn't where they were supposed to be. They were somewhere else, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've also I've also seen examples of this done where the murderer is actually working with some with you know there's actually two of yep. them. So um, what they do is this is actually again Agatha Christie you know master of this. She had one where it was there were two there was a pair. Um, they pretended to hate each other, um, and then one dressed up as the other and gave him an alibi essentially somewhere else so that he could actually do the murder. Yeah. Um, or, or basically, actually, they they kind of they dressed him up in certain ways so that it looked like, well, no, he was there for the actual murder, and then, but no, hold on a second, no, he wasn't, he was over there, um, and it kind of they kind of all made it flip and stuff like that, um, and he got kind of convoluted at one point where, for example, it was like, well, we know that you went and purchased uh, poison, and he went, ah, no, actually, the person who signed for this, this is not my signature. Someone has clearly dressed up as me. Um, and it it all kind of got very convoluted, but it seemed to basically build up this whole picture, which was he literally couldn't be there. He's being set up. Um, and the fact yeah. is that he literally was there. He wasn't being set up. He did commit the murder. But <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was actually very, very cleverly done. And Poirot was like, wow, <laughs> wow, guys. <laughs> Uh, okay, everyone will be familiar with this next trope, even if you don't mm. like who done it, and that mm -hmm. is the stately home. And this is right out of Agatha Christie. I think she kind of popularised it. I mean, obviously, you have got Wilkie Collins, The Moonstone, the very first detective novel, as it's recognised. And yes, again, the yeah. stately home is the setting, and various Sherlock Holmes stories. Again, stately homes do play a big part in a lot of them. But I think Agatha Christie really crystallised yeah. the whole stately home setting. Um, basically, you're all holed up together, there's a murder, you're trying to avoid a scandal because that's a normal yes. thing to do when someone gets murdered. It's like, oh, the scandal! Um, it's ridiculous because nobody under those circumstances would stay in that house. And yes, in, generally in the setting, people will say, oh, I want to go yeah. home and someone will persuade them not to. But basically, you end up in, you, you end up in a situation where the real murderer cannot leave in case they arouse suspicion and the investigator yes. can examine witnesses at her leisure again using miss marple um and it, it can also be used to explore things like class conflict which we've touched a, a bit in some of the other tropes and i think agatha christie actually did a lot more of that than people kind of give her credit for yeah absolutely there is a lot of you know all of the stately homes there is this whole kind of look at what are these people actually like? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I just, there is something very appealing about it. It's been parodied in films like Clue, yeah. which most people have probably seen. And Clue is a very, very funny film. And it takes the piss out of a lot of these tropes, but it does it in a way that suggests that they absolutely love this genre. Yeah. I mean, even, <laughs> even the game Cluedo... It's a big stately house. Yep. They're all there for dinner. <laughs> They're all these other well-bred people. And, you know, um, Knives Out, again, they took yep. the stately home um, and turned it into an internal family yep. war. Um, where, yeah, the, the 
unregarded person, the maid, suddenly becomes the heiress yeah. of everything. And ergo, it kind of paints a big target on her as the murderer. There was this great back and forth involved in that. And um, Honestly, I think uh, Daniel Craig had so much fun making that film, it should have been illegal, because he's clearly enjoying himself in every single scene. He is... Daniel Craig went I'm a bit tired of the whole James Bond thing I'm just going to have so much fun with this Um, (laughs) I want to be a wacky investigator yeah and uh, yeah they did do they did a great job with it Um, and you're absolutely right it does totally play into that trope and it's just likeable you you can't help it there is something about just the whole stately home thing and I think also it, it actually in some ways arcs back to the whole gothic idea as well yeah you know that everyone in a house everyone you know a big old house and inherently within a big old house there are secrets you know how often you know with Poirot and stuff like that does it involve well there's a secret passage under the library or stuff like that that's literally happened um you know or there's there's things in the attic or etc um or a servant is is actually you know one of our children or etc 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 it arcs back to just this idea which is even older um and has remained popular so there's something about it clearly that we like and uh i know that i love it (laughs) i do i'm kind of like it's kind of what i want i want a setting where it's where the normal rules of engagement are suspended so i mean with a lot of the poirot you have you know, like um, Death on the Nile or Murder on the Orient Express. It's a mode of transportation or, you know, he'll be in a theatre or something, but it's somewhere where your normal day-to-day rules have been suspended. And with Miss Marple, it's kind of like, it's a stately home. We're all having tea and scones, etc. Except nobody can leave until we figure out who's a murderer. No, no, you're all trapped in the house. Um, And Agatha Christie, I mean, really did that. You know, she had a murder mystery, which, you know, took place on a plane and stuff like that. It's great. It's the whole, we're all in this to get, we're all literally stuck here. And the stately home really does provide a fantastic backdrop. Um, So the last one is the big reveal. Um, And again, we can thank Christy for this. Though I do feel like, obviously, Sherlock Holmes also really fed into this because he, you know, he had this whole, let's be dramatic and have the big dramatic reveal at the end. Yeah, I think it's one of those um, ones where once again she's like, I like this trope, and then really ran with it so that oh, the yeah, whole sort of, we must all gather together at the end for the big reveal. Yeah, um, absolutely. It is a typical thing of Poirot, which is that, you know, everyone's gathering in a room. I mean, Agatha Christie as well. Everyone's gathering in a room and everything is revealed. All of it is revealed. Whereas, of course, with Sherlock Holmes, it's, it tends to be that he reveals everything to Watson or you know, they're, they're running after or they catch the murderer in the act or something along those lines. Um, but yes, it, it I do think it's one of those typical things, which is we can't actually give the, pu- you know, we, we have to wait until the end to re- reveal the puzzle and then we have to reveal it in a very interesting and fun way. Um, and yeah, it, it does involve everyone being all put together, usually in a room, um, sometimes in the stately home being served tea by the victim um, and the detective methodically lays out their theory um, discounting witnesses until the murderer is finally revealed and confesses and it it literally is I love how Agatha Christie's (laughs) all of her detectives are like we're not only going to reveal the whole mystery we're going to spill everyone's tea as well (laughs) 
I know, nobody leaves that room yeah. unscathed, do they? I mean, you have to be genuinely innocent yeah. of everything. The truth um, is always revealed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I mean, lesser writers have done it and made it look yeah. quite cheesy. But it can also be the best and most thrilling bit of a whodunit because you've taken your reader on this journey, you've given them a puzzle, um, hopefully two-thirds of the way through, they've started to come up with a theory of who they think it is. They're either going to be proved right or deliciously wrong mm. by looking back in hindsight. Um, so yeah, they're really invested. So don't yeah, fluff seriously. the ending, basically. Um, I would add one final trope, which I didn't write in my notes, but I just want to talk about the unusual investigator. They're never somebody, it's no. never your average Joe, is it? It's never, it's never generally your, I mean, w once you get onto someone who's actually a typical police detective or what have you, then you're, you're in crime territory and you're not just investigating a murder, you're investigating something, a murder as part of a crime, a you know, a series of events, as it were. Whereas with a whodunit, it's very specifically, there's a murder, we've got to get to the bottom of it. And your investigator is often quite a big personality. I mean, think about Miss Marple, looks like someone's granny, yeah. blind like a, a bacon slicer, as she's described. <laughs> or Poirot, who's exceedingly vain of his wax moustache, and yet supposedly one of the most intelligent men in the world. Yeah, um, uh, or, <laughs> this is the other thing is I've, I've kind of got to point out because we can say, oh, well, all right. But you've really got to think again of the context of the time, which is you have a little old woman. Yeah. Um, who is kind of looked down upon. Um, you know, she seems to be a bit of a a little bit of a busybody. You know, that's what they'll say. And yet she's the smartest she's a, person in the room. She's never been married. She's a spinster that automatically put you beyond the pale for a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and she... <laughs> um, you know she's not it's not like she can run around she can't do all the legwork so we're moving even away from i mean even if you look at sherlock holmes he's a bit of an oddball he's you know he's yeah the way that he kind of works he's got a doctor you know beside him that they you know that's a bit of a pair of eccentrics um but they are running around doing the legwork they're very active sherlock holmes is a bit of a superhero he can fight he can do all those things you know sometimes they have to draw guns and etc um, Miss Marple cannot do any of these things. She is a she's a tiny old woman. She likes to knit. She gets invited around. You know, she has nephews and and you know friends and stuff like that. She's pleasant company. She's also sharp as a tack and solves murders every now and again. <laughs> um, Poirot is a refugee. He is a Belgian refugee from the war. Yeah. Um, he was a policeman technically in Belgium, um, but you know he's he's not a policeman anymore. He is a foreigner, um, and he's vain. He's small. He's not married, um, and he's not particularly fit. I mean, one of the part of things of Hastings is useful because Hastings can do that legwork where Poirot cannot, and that's you know that's all part of it. They're very unlikely, therefore, in what was already established as. You kind of the, the sort of the murder mystery the the whodunit sort of ideas they're very unlikely and once again agatha christie sets a precedent so again in modern things we see these very very unlikely detectives yeah whenever you're chowing down on your your cozy mystery or your cozy crime you can thank agatha christie that you've got that main character because she's yeah. the one who said no it's not going to be this it's going to be one of the most unlikely people and yet they're going to surprise you. And they're going to surprise you by the fact that they're living their life under their terms, which includes solving these terrible murders. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
again, uh, I'll draw back to Claire Granager's The Unexpected Return of Josephine Fox. Um, the two kind of mystery solvers in that are definitely, you know, not who you'd expect. They're kind of part of the system in terms of, they're part, a little bit part of the legal system because technically they're working as lawyers. Um, but they, you know, they're not actually formal investigators. Um, and obviously it changes as the next kind of book comes in and stuff like that with certain, ex you know, stuff. But they're, they're literally just kind of ordinary people who were part of the system, but then keep being told to kind of just get out of the way. And Josephine Fox in particular, you know, as an outcast within in the society um, during a time where women weren't, yeah. that wasn't the kind of thing that women would be doing, certainly. Not respectable at all. Yeah. And certainly, yeah, certainly in out of the way places, um, that was, it was... It wasn't quite immediately sort of like it's the Second World War and no one cares who's sleeping with anyone else. That attitude yeah. changed very gradually. Um, and then you've yeah. got Bram, who's a Jew, who, you know, that obviously we did shelter a lot of Jews during the Second World War, but they weren't necessarily completely welcome. We didn't just throw our arms open. Yeah. Quite often they were taken under sufferance. And his family had been in the country for some time and was still kind of like, mm, well, you don't really mix with the Jewish kid. Yeah, exactly. Um, and not only that, he has been horrifically disfigured as well because yeah. he fought in World War One, and he has this terrible injury on his face, this terrible scarring, um, which means that he kind of has to wear this mask this whole time. And so you have these two very unlikely kind of heroes, again within the time, who are both sort of respectable but both also kind of outcast. Um, and they're out there solving mysteries and it just goes to show i mean i love them as characters i just i'm so much more engaged with them um and i think increasingly people are, are moving away from the detective fiction which involves you know actually policemen and stuff like that which obviously got very very popular um sort of a little bit later on um and in some cases might literally have been part of kind of propaganda um, and are moving much back towards the Agatha Christie. Actually, I kind of want regular people who are sometimes actually even being foiled by the police or only have one or two people within the police that they can trust um, and who are outcasts and therefore actually have a bit of a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, right, well, we yeah. did say we'd talk very briefly about why done it, and as you can probably tell from my my coined <laughs> term now, I'm not sure anyone else really uses it, um, a why done it is one where you know who the murderer is early on, if not right out of the gate. You might even see it happening depending on what, whether, what yeah. book you're reading or you know what film you're watching. Um, but what you've got to do, or what the investigator has got to do, is create that chain of evidence that mm -hmm. proves unequivocally that that person is guilty. And I think I found that yeah. quite a refreshing way of of doing things. Um, I, I I love a good who done it, but I also really like a well done why done it because someone's done something. You're pretty sure it's them. You can't prove it. So how do you go about gathering the evidence? And also, you've got to be careful of things like confirmation bias, as in, you know it's this person, but are you missing yeah. some interesting moving parts that inform the entire picture? Um, a really good example of this is Luther with Idris Elba, and every single one of those um, seasons, I think they're still on Netflix, you know who the main murderer is at the very beginning, but proving it is really difficult, and it, you, you watch him sort of 
he, he does a lot of really quite intelligent stuff. I'm a big fan of people doing intelligent stuff and still being very flawed and human and making huge mistakes, put it that way. <laughs> you also, um, with the with the Y done it, um, you know, you can actually um, turn it around by basically having, well, we know there's a murderer and stuff like that. And then as things are uncovered, you know who the murderer is, you know that it's, it's you know, that they are guilty, that they definitely murdered that person. You might have literally watched it happening. And then the, the whole mystery is why has that occurred? And, you know, it can then flip the whole narrative around, which is that, hold on a second, actually, um, actually perhaps it literally wasn't them or perhaps it was an act of self-defense um or it was it was an act which was done not for evil reasons but for you know for for reasons of of self-preservation or to save somebody else um or etc um again you kind of have a version of this that agatha christie did uh where the story literally starts with a woman getting hanged for murder she's confessed um and uh Poirot kind of gets brought in by her daughter many years later to sort of reopen the case and technically the case is shut the woman confessed she was hanged that was it and then as you kind of go into the okay but why did this happen what were exactly all of the moving parts um everything is revealed where first of all actually she wasn't the murderer she confessed to it because she thought her sister had done it and she was trying to protect her sister but it wasn't her sister yeah. it was actually someone else entirely um and Poirot basically solves the whole thing and it goes from being this why done it to a who done it um which can actually be very successful um but also you know i i do like why done it's on their own as well the kind of the piecing the whole story together um in order to understand um how the puzzle worked yeah definitely um we've talked about probably most of the examples i've kind of listed so i'm just going to ask madeline what her favorite who done it or why done it or both is um, very, very hard to say. Uh, I, I think that there are just so many different types and obviously I've mentioned some of the the ones that I really like already. Um, I do like Death on the Nile, I do like the Orient Express. Um, I have loved Poirot for a very, very long time, you know. I was introduced to it at a young age and just adore it. I, I do love some good old, you know, Sherlock Holmes as well, which is not quite the same kind of level, but yeah, I, I love that as well. Um, I did really enjoy Knives Out too. Um, yeah, and obviously same. Claire Gradiger's books, I'm a big fan of them. Um, but there are aspects of the whodunit which I think prevail within other genres and other stories. So even though I can't give those as examples of the whodunit, I love the whodunit elements within lots and lots of other books too. Um, what about you? Yeah. Um, uh, pretty much everything you've just said. I, I would I would mm. add See How They Run to this as well. Um, see How They Run, obviously, as I've said, it it's set around the mousetrap. Um, somebody in the cast of the mousetrap is murdered. Um, and the detective who comes in is a bit of a specialist, but he's got a slightly tragic backstory and he drinks too much. 
and he is given a young police woman um, to work with because she wants to go for mm -hmm. her sergeant's exam. She's played by Saoirse Ronan. And a lot of it is played for comedy, but it's done in such a clever way that, again, it's a bit like Clue in that it takes the tropes and it sort of subverts them very slightly, pokes a bit of fun at them and then yeah. says, yeah, but isn't this actually brilliant? Don't we all love it? And I really liked it. I have to say, part of what set me off on this particular episode was reading a Guardian article where someone said how crap they thought See How They Run are. And I read the article and was really quite sort of, <laughs> you clearly didn't understand that thing at all, did you? It went right over your head. I bet you don't like who done it. <laughs> so I felt quite indignant. Yeah, it's actually an odd thing is that I, I tend to find that, there are, that The Guardian does all sorts of very good articles. You know, they employ some, some really fantastic sort of writers, for example, to... Um, to talk about various bits and bobs and I love those but for some reason whenever it comes to the reviews that the Guardian put out I tend to completely disagree with yeah. them I'm like who are why are you writing these to be honest <laughs> you clearly have not got these things I used at to be all. a big fan and now I find like 75% of their articles are utter bollocks so um I'm full I'm I'm, I'm on a break with the Guardian <laughs> but I just yeah that's fair enough I just have to see that I, one um, but yeah, I, I I tend to like the sort of some of the the their kind of guest their their guest writer articles. Yeah. Um. Weirdly, one of the things that they didn't like about see how they run was the fact that they said, "Oh, well, you played around with historical elements, like it would be very unlikely to have a female police officer during the 1940s." Or like, well, yes, but also they blind casted a lot of the cast mm. as well. And they did it in that almost sort of Shakespeare way where it's kind of like, no, we're looking at this. We're not specifically looking at class. We're not specifically looking at race or anything like that or sexuality. But why can't we have something that's a tiny bit sort of spoofy based off of uh, the classic whodunit and just have fun with it? It was very clear that's what they were doing. Mm. Um, it irritated me no end that that went over the person's head. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do have to say that, you know, the whole blind casting thing, it it really does depend what you're trying to do with it. And with a whodunit, which, as we said, if you're writing whodunit, it is a little bit pantomime. Um, and when I say pantomime, that doesn't necessarily mean, therefore, it's a it's a less worthy story or that it's not going to be as good or that, that, it's, that it's inherently silly. Um, you know... That's not what I mean at all, but pantomimes by their very nature are speculative. And the moment you make something speculative like that, um, you've kind of got to just say, okay, um, that's where the, you know, <laughs> that's where the concentration lies. So yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen it, so I can't judge. Um, and I haven't read the article, but. <laughs> I think you'd really, yeah, I think you'd really enjoy it. You should watch it over Christmas. Or okay, something. I definitely will. In my yeah, opinion. <laughs> I definitely will. Um, so very quickly then, um, before we wrap up and go, because I realise that uh, time is ticking on, um, do you think that, I mean, I already know the answer to this, but how do you feel like the whodunit has affected your own writing? Um, it's more like how mystery in general has affected my own writing, because... I always think I'm writing urban fantasy, I'm writing ghost story, etc. I'm writing historical, and yet every single one of my books is a mystery yeah. on some level. Um, but it was very specifically brought home to me, I suppose, writing I Belong to the Earth. I Belong to the Earth is yeah. a ghostly whodunit um, in, in all but name, and 
what kind of gave it away was I genuinely thought that somebody else did it right up until the end of writing that book when it's the big reveal was also <laughs> a big reveal to me as well. And it's like, and the weird thing was that I had foreshadowed it through the preceding <laughs> 60,000 words or what have you. And I'm like, well, some level of my brain knew what was going on there because how else could it have been anybody? How could it have been anybody else? But at the same time, it was like, that was one of the weirdest things yeah. that ever happened to me whilst writing a book. So it's it's clearly in there, and clearly when I want to drive a plot, yeah, I reach I, for I, mystery I elements, to agree. I guess. Um, and I think that even with Harker and Blackthorn, um, we see elements of it. Um, and again, it is that, that mystery, because it is the whole, well, we've kind of got to piece together what's going on, um, rather than we have a very clear quest, a very clear A yeah. to B, and there are troubles on the way. It's, uh, no, we have a mystery, and we need to you know, we need to find the answer for it. Um, so it, it's definitely worked and, and definitely, I think, appeared more and more and more in the Harker and Blackthorn um, rather than in the Unveiled, where there was a, usually a greater sense of we kind of already know, even yeah. if it wasn't necessarily entirely clear, there were mystery elements, I think, even in the second book and, and, and so forth. Um, but we're definitely seeing that in Harker and Blackthorn, um, which feel very much like they they do have that kind of well the inherent mystery elements to it um and i think to be honest with my own writing that's very much what i'm finding with the kestrel saga specifically um not probably to the same yeah. degree uh, but definitely in the well we've kind of got to start putting things together <laughs> because Kestrel just stumbles on something in fact pretty much as every book I'm on book three at the moment and she's just like one of these days I want to go on a case on a case which doesn't end in a dead body because she just keeps finding these dead bodies and getting pulled into murder mysteries <laughs> poor Kestrel it wasn't intended to be like that but I, ju I think that this is the problem when you spend yeah. your entire childhood watching Miss uh, watching um Poirot and Miss Marple, um, and reading Sherlock Holmes, uh, there's just no way that you can you can you can avoid it. Um, yep. <laughs> so yeah, uh, what do you guys think? Uh, what are some of your favourite whodunits? Uh, do let us know. Um, and remember, you can get in contact with us via our um, Twitter, our Tumblr, or our Facebook, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Uh, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. Um, yes, I'm going to just go ahead and recommend See How They Run. Um, just mm -hmm. because I think it's a really, it's a good entertaining film in its own right. It's got some great acting. It's very funny. It's dryly funny as well. So that really worked for me. And I think it's a really good look at the form of the whodunit. Um, gently poking fun at the more ridiculous elements, as I said, but also at the same time um, managing to be very inclusive for everybody and also show that it really loves the genre it's come from. It's very good. If you like Knives Out, I don't see why you wouldn't enjoy See How They Run. And just remind me, is it a series or a movie and where can it be found? It's, it's a film and I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon Prime. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. I am definitely going to check that out. It sounds like a perfect sort of like Sunday night watch or Saturday night watch <laughs> tucked in uh, during the winter. And on that note, guys, yes. we will say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye.
You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>